Good morning, it's so great to see you here today. My name is Hannah and I serve with our student ministries team. If you're new to Wheaton Bible and wanna learn more about who we are as a church and start connecting with others, then you're invited to join us for step one of the growth track. The monthly growth track is designed to help you grow in your relationship with God and connect to the church. At step one, you can get connected with others, dive into what life at Wheaton Bible Church is all about and ask any questions you have. It takes place next week during the 1030 service. You can register and get more details at wheatonbible.org slash next steps. That's all for today. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us and we hope you have a great week. Good morning, Wheaton Bible Church. Welcome to worship. I'm gonna ask you to stand with us here in the room. Welcome to those joining us to worship online. Let's worship the God who is unchanging, unmovable. Uh, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's hear these words from Psalm 100. And let them call you to worship him. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give him thanks. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. And his faithfulness continues through all generations. We praise you, Lord. Church, lift your voice. Heaven thundered and the world was born. Life begins and ends in the dust you Nothing 
this unstoppable God. Hear these words from Isaiah. It says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We thank you, Jesus. Upon Him, Christ has. 
family. My name is Renita Gilliland and I serve on our Kids Life team. This morning it's my joy to lead us in celebrating believers' baptism. In the Great Commission Jesus gave to his followers, he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In response to Jesus' instructions, we practice the baptism of believers. 
those who have already placed their faith in Jesus. We don't believe baptism saves us or helps us get into heaven. Instead, we believe it is an act of joyful obedience to the Lord that is an outward symbol of our new life in Jesus. This morning we're celebrating three baptisms in this worship service. My hope for you is that the testimony of our friends being baptized will remind you of the truth and hope of the gospel, that only Jesus has the power to rescue and restore us. Our first friend being baptized today is Maya Heath. Maya is eight years old. <laughs> Maya is eight years old and she professed her faith in Christ two years ago. Since then, her parents, Katie and Isaac, Katie is with us this morning, um, have seen a real empathy for people that are hurting or in need. If one of her siblings is hurting or upset, she's displayed a very caring heart and in many situations given up something she has or has wanted to do in order to lift up their spirits. They've also seen this in her continued prayers for her great-grandmother, Grandma Rosie. She brings her up often in prayer, unprompted, and especially during the pandemic when she was in lockdown in her nursing home. Katie and Isaac's prayer for Maya is that she will seek the Lord as she gets older and matures, and that the gift of caring and empathy will be something that only grows stronger as her walk with the Lord grows. Maya? believe Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Yes. Okay. Then, as fellow believers, we're able to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. church, one of the best parts of my job is that I get to hear the stories of faith. And so I want to introduce to you Tyler and Ashley Norman. Tyler and Ashley are newer to Wheaton Bible Church, but it's because of the work of Christ through his word, the teaching of his word, that these two are coming to declare their faith today. So I want us to celebrate with them as they take this step. And so Tyler, I wanna ask you in front of your church family, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Yes. Well, it's because of that declaration that I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ashley, it has been a joy to hear your story and to talk with you. So just like your husband, I'm going to ask you the same question in front of this church family. Is, are you declaring 
that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Yes. Well, it's because of that de declaration, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
Hey, we invite, will you, will you just kind of bow your head and close your eyes and think about that last statement. Because of you, my heart is clean. I just want us to be silent. I want us to tune our hearts to that statement, that truth. So in the quietness of your heart, I want you to answer this question to yourself. What comes to your mind when you think about that statement? Because of you, my heart is clean comes to your mind. Jesus, what comes to my mind is just gratitude. I could just sit and I could just thank you with words after another. Words upon words. Just thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because of you, my heart is clean. But I know that you have called me to not only express with my words my gratitude and how grateful I am for you, but you have called me to exercise every fiber of my being, my, my mouth and my eyes and my hands and my feet and my entire body to demonstrate that gratitude every single day. So may we be people that not only express our gratitude with our lips for that statement, because of you my heart is clean, but may our lives orbit around the glory and the grace and the mercy of King Jesus. May our lives be a walking billboard of that statement, because of you my heart is clean. For it's in your name we pray, King. Amen. Wheaton Bible, you may be seated. Well, welcome. My name is Josh Laxton. I am one of the teaching pastors here. I also get the privilege of engaging our young adults, which we have some young adults up there this morning. So good to see you. Well, one of the things that I want to do before we kind of dive into our series is I want to talk a little bit about giving, and I want to do so from Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul, he's with some church leaders there in Ephesus, and he's just kind of giving them some last words of what he would like from them. And at the very end of his discussion with them, he says something that Jesus basically repeated over and over and over, because in many Bibles it is highlighted in red, and it, and it says this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I know that in our culture, it is really hard to understand that, right? Because we kind of live by it's more blessed to receive than to give. I mean, that is our culture. Our culture is one of take, 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 receive, receive, receive. And we think we are more blessed to receive than to give, which is why Jesus and this statement is counterintuitive and counterculture. It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
Now, when I think about that word blessed, I think about Genesis 1, where God blessed Adam and Eve, and he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the earth. Now, this idea of blessed is that God is blessing Adam and Eve with his presence, with his power. He is gifting them himself in order to fulfill this divine mandate to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Now, when you think about this idea of it's more blessed to give than to receive, I want you to think about when we give, we are inviting the presence and power of God uh, on and in our lives to do what he has called us to do. So think about it this way, church. We will not be able to fulfill the call of God, the mission of God to which he has called us to unless we do what? Give. And it's not just financially. It is of our time and our talents and our treasure. Now, sure, we, we, we want you. We want you to participate. We invite you to participate in giving through finances. There's two ways to do that, and I'll put them on the screen behind me. But also I want us to note that in the coming days, as we really do kind of uh, emerge out of this pandemic, more and more people will be coming back to gather with the church. And so guess what we're going to need? We're going to need more and more people to give of their time and their talents. And we're going to need you to serve. We're going to need you to serve as greeters, as ushers. We're going to need you to serve in the children's ministry, the student ministry, the young adult ministry, and every other ministry that we have. Why? Because when we give... We are inviting God's presence and power into our life, into the life of our church to do what he has called us to do. A church that does not give is going to be hard-pressed to be a church on mission. So let us be a church on mission by giving. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we do pray that we would be a church that gives. That we give of our time and our talents and our treasures and that we would not do it begrudgingly oh I got to give but father may we give sacrificially in a joyful way may it be from a joyful obedience as we will see this morning in our text in Jonah chapter 3 father I'm grateful for Wheaton Bible I'm grateful for the 92 years of her history, but also I, I want to honor the past, but I want us to look expectantly to the future that you are not done with us yet. But in using us, we have to steward what you have given us that we might be givers and not just receivers. And so, Father, may we be just that, givers and not necessarily just receivers. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me also just extend a warm welcome to all of those who are engaging with us online, family members, guests. So uh, thank you so much for connecting with us. Now we're in our series, one story, everybody say it, Jesus and... Yeah, that, that, that's the series that we're in. And we are actually in chapter 3 this morning. Now, I've got a question. Now, I want you to be honest because you're with the church. So you need to be honest around church people, right? So here's my question. How many of you, especially if you have a driver's license and you drive a car, how many of you consider yourselves good drivers? Anybody, any good drivers out there? 
Yeah. Now, if, if you've come with your spouse and they don't think you are, I'm sure that you just got a nudge. You know, like, put your hand down. Sucker, you ain't, you ain't a good driver. Now, if I was sitting next to my wife and I raised my hand, she'd be nudging me. And if she raised her hand, I'd be nudging her. That's the reason why. That's the reason why I say, no, baby, I, I got this. I, you know, I'll, I'll drive. Just don't trust Joni behind the wheel. Now, uh, she's like, well, you let me drive her kids. I was like, I pray the entire time you're gone. Now, now, that whole idea of good being, uh, you know, being a good driver, it's really subjective, right? Like, it's subjective. If maybe if you've never gotten a wreck or maybe you've never gotten a ticket, you're like, I'm a good driver. Uh, but I, I, brought a, I brought a couple of pictures with me. Here's the first picture that I, I want to show you. It's a picture of a stop sign. All right. Now, now, the reason why I brought a picture of a stop sign is because I want to teach us all a lesson on how to adequately stop at a stop sign. All right, so uh, this is a stop sign that I took on Willow uh, Avenue. That's the road that we live off of. And so I take my dog for a walk all the time. And so this is just one of the many stop signs. And I cannot tell you how many times as I'm coming up to a stop sign and I see a, a, a car uh, approaching the stop sign, they, they start slowing, 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 and then they accelerate. They never come to a full stop. Never. Now, you know how I know what a full stop is? You know how I know? I got stopped. <laughs> I got pulled over one time years ago. I was living outside of Atlanta and I was driving somewhere that day and it was in our town. And so I got to a stop sign and I thought I stopped. I mean, listen, a turtle. I mean, I wouldn't even hurt a turtle. I mean, I was going that slow, but I didn't stop. And because I didn't stop, the police officer pulled me over. He's like, you know why I pulled you over? I'm like, no, I really don't because I know I wasn't speeding. He's like, well, you didn't stop. I'm like, yeah, I did. He's like, no, when you stop, you, all, you, you actually kind of go back just a little bit. So you come up to a stop sign, stop sign, and you stop, and it almost goes back just a little bit. He's like, that's a full, complete stop. I'm like, huh, didn't know that. <laughs> Bet you didn't either. <laughs> now, here's another, here's another sign that I brought with me. It's a, uh, it's a speed limit sign. 20 miles an hour. Like, I walk faster than 20 miles an hour. You know, so when, when, you've, when you've been on the interstate and you've been going 65, 70, and then you get off the interstate and then you get into one of these speed limit zones 20, you're like, what in the world? It's hard. Now, have you ever been in one of those sections where it goes from 65 to 55 to 45 to 35? I'm like, Lord, have mercy. This is awful. This is hell here, you know. Like, it really is awful. Now you say, Josh, what does this have to do with the message this morning? Well, here, here's what it has to do is these aren't suggestions. Did you know that? Like, like the town of Wheaton, they didn't think, well, you know, huh, I wonder where we should, should, uh, should suggest that they stop. Or I wonder what kind of speed limit we should suggest that they go. No, they, these are laws and rules of the road. And here's the thing about these signs. Now, don't miss this, okay? Don't miss this. These signs are meant to change your mind. These signs, these words are meant to change your mind. Why? Because you're accelerating, you're accelerating, you're accelerating. You see this red sign that says stop. You then have to change your mind to obey the sign. Speed limit. You've been going 65 all day long. You get off the interstate and then you come to this town and it says 20 miles an hour. You have to change your mind. You see, these signs are meant to change our mind. 
And if we don't change our mind, guess what might happen? You might get a fine. (laughs) You might get a ticket. You might hurt somebody. You might damage your vehicle if you don't pay attention to the sign. Now, what did what does this have to do with Jonah 3? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Are you ready for the main point this morning? If you are, say you're ready. ready. Here's the main point this morning. It's, it's, it's pretty powerful. The Word of God is meant to change the mind of man. Obedience to God's Word is meant to change the mind of God. Amen. See, the thing about those signs, if you don't change your mind and you don't obey those signs, you might just get a fine. And see, when it comes to God and his law and his word and how he has orchestrated everything, as human beings, if we don't obey God's word, then we won't change his mind, And which we'll get to that later on this morning. But we will stand right now and we will honor the reading of God's word. And we're going to read one verse this morning. And then we're going to go back in verses 1 through 9 and we're going to unpack it. But we're going to read verse 10 because it highlights our main point. And here's what verse 10 says. When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did and how they turned, how they repented, how they changed their mind. Because that's what repentance means. It means to change your mind. So when they changed their mind from their evil ways, what does it say? God relented. God changed his mind. God turned and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Father, speak. Word of God, speak. Spirit, move in our midst. May we leave different than when we came here this morning, not as a result of my preaching, but as a result of the power of God and his word to change lives. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's just unpack this main point this morning. And we will start in verse 1, Jonah chapter 3. And here's what verse 1 says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Everybody say it. A second time. Whoa, I want us to sit in that just for a second. A second time. Like it's pretty amazing that Jonah had an encounter the first time. That God came to Jonah a first time. And we know that Jonah didn't obey the first time. He ran away. And then God pursued him. And now after the fish vomits Jonah out, which I bet it was a pretty nasty sight, God's word comes to him a second time. Aren't you grateful? Hey, church, aren't you grateful that we serve a God of a second time? Now, I love the game of golf. I played in college. I don't get to play a lot now, but I did get to play yesterday. And let me tell you something about not getting to play a lot and then going out on a course. Let me tell you what I love. I love, if any golfers are out there, guess what I love? I love, it starts with the M, mulligans. <laughs> love mulligans. If you don't play golf and you're like, what is a mulligan? It's a do-over. It's a second chance. <laughs> And so when I get up on the tee box, I'm not thinking, well, I'm going to shank this so I can use my mulligan. That's not what I'm thinking. I'm just out there, and I'm trying to do the best I can, and I'm trying to put the ball in the fairway, put the ball on the green. But there are times occasionally uh, where I do hit a wayward tee shot or I do hit a wayward approach shot, and guess what I do? I go into my pocket, I pull out another golf ball, I throw it down, I'm like, mulligan. We serve a God of unlimited mulligans. 
And the reason why I use that illustration is because, like I said, I don't, I don't like go to the tea box thinking, I got a mulligan. So we shouldn't approach life thinking, well, I'm just going to sin so that God can give me a mulligan. No, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we sin that grace may increase? What does he say? By no means. We should not. Why? Because we have died to sin. See, Jonah, he has this second chance of God. And I understand that in my life, and I'm sure in the life of everyone here is we just don't need a second chance. We need a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance, a sixth chance, a seventh chance, an eighth chance, a ninth chance. We serve a God of unlimited grace when it comes to his children. And so here the word of the Lord is coming to Jonah a second time. You might be sitting here this morning and you're thinking, Man, I just, God can't forgive me. God can't restore me. You know, I'm just, no, you are not too far gone. God loves you. God's not done with you. As long as you have breath, God has purpose for you. But then in the second verse, here's what we read. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and basically gives him his marching orders. Uh, this is his job description. This is his role and responsibility. And the way I would kind of address it this morning is this, his prophetic role in the world. It's his prophetic role there in Nineveh. Now there's four elements to his prophetic role and what I want to say as well for us this morning is that as the church we are God's prophetic witnesses in the world so what God is going to do with Jonah he actually is going to do with us even here in the 21st century and here's basically Jonah's role and responsibilities there's actually four of them and I'll put them up on the screen he has a prophetic duty a prophetic presence a prophetic engagement and a prophetic message let's look at his prophetic duty God wants him to go and do. He wants him to go and proclaim. Church, you realize that God, if you know Jesus, if you have repented of your sin, you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, Jesus has changed you, he has transformed you, you realize that he has not changed you and transformed you so that you can just come to church, sing a couple of good songs, listen to a long-winded preacher, whether it's Pastor Hannibal, Pastor Rob, or Pastor Josh. You know, that, that's not why he has saved you. He's not saved you to sit on your little couch and eat bonbons and like pet your poodle. That's not why he has saved you. He has saved you for a prophetic duty to go and do, to go and tell. He's really quiet after that, but that's what he's done. <laughs> prophetic presence. Now, could you imagine, Jonah, he's a Jew. Now he's being sent to Nineveh, a bunch of Gentiles, Assyrians. You, you better believe that when he walks into the city, there's this prophetic presence because he shouldn't be there. Like, what are you doing here, bro? Don't you know we, like, we hate you? And Jonah waltzing up in there. He's like, I know, God made me. <laughs> but it's this prophetic presence. And we know that it's probably been at least a month since he's, you know, been vomited out of the fish. So we don't know if his skin is still bleached. We don't know if there's still a stench coming off of him. Well, we don't know. But when he walks into a city, they know something's different. Let me ask you this. Your friends, your family members, your co-workers, the people on your block, your neighbor. 
Do they, do they sense something is different about you? Do you have a prophetic presence? And I'm not saying that they need to know exactly what's, what's different about you. But here's the thing about the Spirit of God living in us and through us is that if we're around people long enough, they'll pick up there's something different about you because you have a prophetic presence. Why? Because we are in the world, but we're not of the world. And then a prophetic engagement. Now he's supposed to go into the city and engage Ninevites. Now, we see that in verse 2, God says, go to the great city of Nineveh, which could actually mean a city great to God. So in the eyes of God, these Ninevites, they mattered to God. And so God wanted Jonah to go to the city and engage them in a manner of how he viewed them. A prophetic engagement of how he entered into the city, how he dialogued, how he conversed, how he talked to the Ninevites, how he cared for the Ninevites. Let me ask us this question, church. Do we care about people the way God cares about them? Do we care about West Chicago? Do we care about Bartlett? Do we care about Carroll Stream? Do we care about Wheaton? Do we care about Glen Ellen? Do we care about Warrenville? Do we care about Naperville? Do we care about the entire Chicagoland area the way God cares about them? Do we care about the way the other is in God's eyes? Uh, The immigrant, the marginalized, the oppressed, the orphan, the widow... The people far from God, do we care about them the way God cares about them? It's a prophetic engagement. And then a prophetic message. A prophetic message. I know that we live in a culture today and even in the church where there's a lot of talk about social justice, biblical justice, however you want to describe it. And I'm all for biblical justice. I'm all for taking care of the poor, the marginalized. I'm all, I'm all for going into a city and seeing where the fabric of that city is torn and bringing healing and mending in the name of Jesus. I'm all for that. I believe in a comprehensive, a holistic mission. Why? Because God is on mission to create a people for himself to reflect his glory in all spheres of life. I'm for that. But may we be a church that never forgets that it is about a message. It is about the proclamation of God's word. It is about the gospel of God. And the gospel is verbal, not just demonstrable. We cannot lose the prophetic message, thus saith the Lord. The prophetic message, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And he who wants to get into heaven, he who wants to go to the Father, must do so by Jesus Christ. This is what the Lord, I mean, we cannot, cannot, cannot lose the word of God. Now, the, the suspense builds, right? Because now the word of the Lord has been given to Jonah a second time. Now, will Jonah obey? Well, let's look in verse 3. Does Jonah obey? Well, yeah. So everybody say it. Jonah what? Obeyed. He obeyed what? The word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So he had a change of mind, right? Because early in chapter 1, he disobeyed, ran away, the opposite direction. The word of God comes to Jonah again. Now he obeyed. He changed his mind. The word comes. He changes his mind. He's like, all right, I'll go to Nineveh. But here's the thing that I, I, I don't want you to miss about Jonah. 
in the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is like this teenager. And the reason why I know that Jonah is like this teenager is because we have two of them in our house. And when it comes to obedience, you can obey the easy way, right, parents? You can obey the easy way or the hard way. You can obey. The, the easy way is joyful obedience. So if we say go clean your room, we want you to be joyful about it. Yeah, I get to go clean my room. I actually got a room. I actually got a bed. I'll go clean it. Yay. We want you to be joyful about it. Hey, we're going to go take you for ice cream. No, we, no, we want you to be joyful. Hey, come on, get in the car. We're going to go get you ice cream. I mean, like, that's not joyful. Guess what that is? That's begrudging obedience. How many believers in this world, you obey God, but you do so begrudgingly? Sure, you'll go to Nineveh, but you ain't happy about it. Because that's exactly what Jonah is going to do. He's begrudgingly going to Nineveh. And the reason why I know this is because you'll see it next week in chapter 4. He hates it. And here's what happens. Don't miss this, church. When we begrudgingly obey the Lord, it leads to transactional mission. We'll just go through the motions. But when we embrace joyful obedience, it leads to transformative mission. It means that we are transformed in the process of being on mission. You see, Jonah's never transformed. He never sees the Ninevites the way God sees the Ninevites. He never cares for the Ninevites the way God cares. He's just doing it out of duty and obligation. And sure, God uses it for his glory. But Jonah misses the joy of obedience. Hey, church, can I, can, can I, just, oh, can I just be so bold as to say, do not miss the joy of joyful obedience. Do not miss, do not miss being joyful in your obedience. And so... He obeys, but really it's more of the hard way. But nevertheless, he goes. And here's what we see in the latter part of verse 3. We see that now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city. And here's what he's proclaiming. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I'm sure a lot of you sitting out there, you wish, man, can you make a message that short? That'd be awesome. That's eight words. In Hebrew, it's five. Listen, I, you know, Joni, my wife, she'll tell you, no, he, that, you, yeah, that ain't ever going to happen. That boy, he can't even say hello in five words. So, uh, so it ain't going to happen today, but that is his message. It's eight words, five words in Hebrew. Now, many scholars think that there's actually more to his message other than this. I, I, I tend to agree. I think there was a lot more because he goes in there, establishes himself. He says what God has put on his heart to say, and then he leaves. It's a kind of a three-day journey. But, but here's what we can at least glean from his, what I would call, tweetable message. So here's this tweetable message. Here's some things that you can take from it, is that there's a window of time to respond. There's a window of time to respond. How many days does Nineveh have? Forty. If you've not responded to Jesus, whether you're here or online, there's a window of time. Now, I don't know what that window is. It could be your lifespan. It could be, you know, maybe you make it to 76 and then you're dead. And if, you never, if you've never done anything with Jesus, then that's your window of time. It might be Jesus comes back. Hey, I believe that Jesus is coming back. Anybody else believe that? 
He can come back today. He can come back right now. It'd be awesome. Yay. And that would be your window of time. See, the Ninevites, they had a trial period, 40 days. That's your window. So again, I don't know what your window is, but you only have a window of time to respond. And praise God that you are either listening online or somebody invited you here to hear the good news that King Jesus loves you, died for you, rose again, and he wants you to repent and turn to him. But you have a window of time. Now, I love what 2 Peter 3 says. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So in that window of time, God wants you to respond. The second thing that you can take away from this tweetable message is that if nothing happens during that time, if there is no change, then there is definitive doom and gloom that awaits. Forty more days and what? Nineveh will be what? Everybody say it. It'll be... You'd be done. Now, I understand we live in the 21st century, and nobody likes to talk about wrath and God's judgment. They don't like that. And there are some of you, maybe you're here, maybe you're online, maybe you know people like, I just don't believe in a God of wrath. I don't believe in a God of judgment. I definitely believe in a God of love, but I don't, I don't believe in a God of judgment and wrath. Well, here's how I would respond to you. First of all, let me just give you a reasonable argument of the Christian faith and of God's judgment. You do realize that everybody has faith. Whether they're a Christian, whether they're an atheist, whether they're a Buddhist, it doesn't matter. Everybody has faith. There's four elements to faith. You have the worldview, you have the object of the worldview, the centerpiece of the worldview. Then you have the mission or the goal or the purpose of that faith, and then you have the ethics of that faith. So worldview, object, mission, and then ethics. When it comes to the Christian faith, here's our worldview. You, you can divide it out like this. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We believe that there is a God who is eternal, always existed, and he created the heavens and the earth. Everything that we see, God created. And he created good and perfect and harmony and order. And then he creates man in his image to reflect his glory. But mankind fell. They rebelled. They committed treason. And so rather than enthroning God as the supreme ruler, they said, you know what? We want to enthrone ourselves. Therefore, the fall. And the fall led to brokenness. The fall led to destruction. The fall led to chaos. And God loved his, he loved his creation so much that he didn't want to, to leave the creation in chaos and destruction. And so he devised a plan of redemption. And that's where he sent even the object of our faith, King Jesus, to come and redeem all of creation, especially image bearers. And that's the reason why Jesus had to go to the cross. It's the reason why Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again so that he might redeem all of creation, particularly human beings who have been created in the image of God. And then you have restoration. One of these days, the, what, here's what we believe that the Bible teaches, is that God would fully restore creation in a state of shalom, total flourishing where there would be no more sin, no more death, no more disease for the former things have passed away. That is our faith. That's our worldview. And like I said, the object of our faith is King Jesus. He is the one that we revolve our lives around. Everything in our lives revolve around King Jesus. And King Jesus has given us this mission to go make disciples of all nations. And then he's given this, these ethics. 
This is how we live. This is how we view the other. This is how we view marriage. This is how we view sexuality. This is how we live. This is how we steward our resources. That's the Christian faith. It's the Christian worldview. And here's what we believe in that worldview is that because we have a just, holy, perfect God, he cannot let rebels, he cannot let sinners go unpunished. He has to punish them. I mean, just think about it. What if you let your kids just do whatever they wanted to do? What if we just let society do whatever it wanted to do? What would you have? You have anarchy. And we intuitively know that's not right. That's not true. Why? Because we have been created the image of God. We've been fashioned to know, yes, we need justice. But justice and mercy go together. God is a just God that has to punish sinners. But he made a way for sinners to become saints. So that's the reasonable argument. God has to punish sin. He would cease being God if he didn't punish sin and sinners. But he made a way for us to become saints rather than sinners. Here's the second more practical wagering argument I would give. It's kind of like Pascal's wager in the 17th century. You, you might be sitting out there, I, just, I still don't believe. But here's the thing. All right, just wait then. Like if you want to sit there and say, I don't believe in a God of wrath. I don't believe in a God of justice. I don't believe that God's going to punish people. Let's just wait. We'll see who's right. We will. Go ahead with your old pride self. Because one of these days, he will judge the living and the dead. Now, I don't want us to miss this either in terms of what we can take away from this tweetable message. In delivering this prophetic warning, there's a glimmer of hope that if something does change, then there's at least a possibility for them to have their future rewritten. God lives, he lives, he leaves just a little bit of a, a hope that he might do something. Can I just say this? God wants to rewrite your future. If you don't know Jesus, he wants to rewrite your future. And it's not going to be one of bad. It's going to be one of glory. I mean, just listen to what Paul writes. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He wants to write your future in eternal glory. Now, how does Nineveh respond? Well, I want you to look in verse 5. Here's, what, here's how they re respond in verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. This is astounding, unbelievable that the Ninevites would even respond like this. Is there anything that would explain why they responded like this? Well, I think there are a couple things. One, scholars point to a series of events that may have softened the heart of the Assyrians. They faced a plague in 765, revolts in 763 through 759, a solar eclipse in 763, famine from 765 to 759. And so scholars believe that God used these events to soften their heart so that when Jonah comes, they'll be receptive. Could it be that 2020 and 2021, as difficult these years have been, may be used by God to soften the heart of humanity, to hear the good news of King Jesus. Could it be? But the second that I think is more important is this, 
is never underestimate the power of God's word on human beings. Never underestimate the power of God's word on human beings. You know we live in a culture we want to hear from everybody but God. What does Tucker Carlson have to say? What does Sean Hannity have to say? What does Don Lemon, what does Chris Como have to say? What does LeBron James have to say? What does Demi Lovato have to say? You know, what does Brad Pitt have to say? What does President Joe Biden, what does Nancy Pelosi, what does Marco Rubio, what does Tim Scott, what do they have to say? We need to be more concerned about what God has to say. See, it's God and the power of his word that creates out of nothing. It's the power of God's word that brings healing. It's the power of God's word that raises the dead. It's the power of God's word that brings mending to a relationship. It is the power of God's word that brings a unity in our diversity. It is the power of God's word. And we should not forget that. And Jonah preached this message the word that God gave him. And they believed, so there's nine elements of repentance. So I, I just want to give them to you, just so that you see them in the text. They believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They expressed their complete dependence on God. Everyone put on sackcloth. Now here's what's so interesting about fasting and sackcloth. They even made their animals do it. Could you imagine old Fido didn't get his meal that day? And then I could imagine trying to put sackcloth on an animal. Like, our, our dog, he doesn't even want a sweater when it's 20 below here in Chicago. Like, what? So, but, but proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth, and then look at what the king did. Look at what the king did. In verse 6, here's what we see what the king did. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust, and this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. Don't miss this, because if you really want to know the heart of repentance, what it truly means to turn from your ways to God's ways is you have to dethrone yourself. You have to dethrone yourself. He came off his royal throne so that God could take his spot. He disrobed himself. You know what? I'm going to take off my royal robes because I know who ultimately wears the royal robes. That's Christ himself. He degraded himself. He sat down in the dust. This is humble reverence and contriteness is that it's not about me, it's about him. And then he declared to others, like, if you really want to know what true repentance is, look at the king in Jonah chapter 3. He declared to others. He wanted to make sure everybody got the memo, you need to repent, repent. And then in verses 7 through 9, there's two additional elements that we see is call urgently on God and give up your evil ways and their violence. Church, don't miss this either. Because Jonah recommitted his life to God, it became a catalyst for citywide movement and revival. Church, if you really want to see revival in America, it does begin with the church. Don't just sit there and pray for revival. You have to posture your life for revival. And that is a recommitment and a reattunement to the glory of King Jesus. Now in verse 9, we see why the king led all of this. And here's what the king said. Here's what the king says. Who knows, God may yet relent, turn, change his mind, and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So what does God do? Well, in verse 10, we see. Let me just go ahead and turn it. 
when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Many people have racked their brains on, okay, try to explain how God relents. How does God relent? How does God repent? How does God change his mind? I thought he was immutable. Well, here's the illustration that I have for that. How many of you know what a speed trap is? Anybody know what a speed trap is? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I, I began with street signs. I'm ending with another traffic thing. So here's the speed trap that I like. It says, family pet center, slow down, caught behind this sign. <laughs> it's telling you, Popo, he's right there. Now, I, I bring up the speed trap because I've had police officers tell me in their mind they have a threshold. So if the speed limit is 55, then their threshold is, okay, if, they, if they're going over 65, if they're going 10 miles over, then we're going to pull them over. So when it comes to, think about you're the police officer, you're sitting there, you have a threshold. So a car passes by you at uh, 48, oh, no, I'm not going to pull them over. Car passes by at 60, no, I'm going to change my mind, not going to pull them over. But if a car passes by at 67 miles an hour, you are hightailing it, turn on your blue lights, you're going to get them. See, what What's happening in Jonah chapter 3 and what the scripture teaches is that God is sitting there. He has the threshold. The threshold is obedience to his word. And he already knows what he's going to do if you pass that threshold. He's coming after you and there will be punishment and there will be wrath to pay. But if you pass by him and you are obedient, then he will relent. And so he really hasn't changed his mind. He just has this threshold. And how do you repent? Well, we've talked about it the entire morning is that you see Jesus and you see that Jesus was your perfect sacrifice. He, he was the one who took your place. You were a sinner. He wasn't, but he took your place on the cross. He took God's wrath for you. He took God's punishment for you. And so if you change your mind and you embrace Jesus as your king, as your savior, anytime you pass by God he's gonna say I see Jesus he's over he's good he's good so here's my question are you speeding are you speeding are you speeding you, you see as, as a believer you know you know what God asks of you so like Jonah early on were you speeding and he has to run after you just kind of recorrect you, discipline you, bring you back. You need to recommit. So if you're a believer and you're running away, you need to recommit. If you are a non-believer, then you need to repent and you need to turn. Because here's the principle. When sinners, here's the principle. Don't, don't leave here without this principle. Go back to that principle. When sinners repent, God relents. When sinners repent, God relents. When, everybody say it. When sinners repent, God relents. Jesus, we know that you are a gracious, merciful God who came to take our place, to take this, the sinner's place. And so, Father, I pray that if there are any people out here in this room or online, they've never repented, they've never turned, I pray that they would do that today. So where you sit, if you're online, if you're on your couch, if you're in your car, if you're sitting here in the auditorium and you have never repented, you've never turned 
to God, to Jesus. I'm inviting you to do that today. And I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer after me. It's not some magical incantation. It's, it's, it's a, literally, it's a prayer of you communicating to God from your heart. And here's what I would ask you if you've never repented. Here's what I would invite you to say. Jesus, I come to you this morning as a sinner, as someone who has just lived my life how I've wanted to live. It might even been a good life. Jesus, I've been trying to do good, but here's what I know. Is that I've been trying to do it all on my own. I've been living with me at the center. And I'm tired of putting faith in myself. I know that it's wrong. And I want to invite you to be the ruler. I want, you to, I want to invite you to be the king. I want to invite you to be the centerpiece of my life. I want my life to revolve around you. And so I repent of my sin. I turn from my sin. I turn from doing what I want to do. And now I turn to you and say, what do you want me to do? Thank you for saving me. I don't know all there is to know, but I want to submit myself to learning about who you are in your greatness and your mercy and your grace. Thank you, Jesus. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you've prayed that and you've repented, you are saved. God relents. Just as he did with the Ninevites, he relents, he changes his mind. You are now an apple of his eye. Why? Because when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. So he sees beauty, he sees wholeness. He sees the sun. Jesus, thank you so much for your love. Amen. Amen, church. I'm going to ask you to remain in your seat. Um, we're going to sing a new song that our team wrote a few months ago. And is our, our desire, uh, we, we are convinced that there's a million things that God is doing. But one thing I know, and I, I'm convinced that he wants his people. He wants revival. He wants to revive his people. Um, and the thing about revival is that it's not for the people out there. It's for all of us. It's for, for you, for me, for us to turn from sin, for us to receive from him the gift of repentance and faith. And to look to Jesus and to want to see Jesus glorified truly in his church, in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our marriages, in our kids, our church, and you and me. Oh, may the Lord not not let us be a building full of people who have never seen him, who've never tasted or seen the goodness of God. So we want to sing that and don't be passive about this song. It's a new song, but pray it, receive it as a prayer, the cry of our hearts before him. Lord, we need you. We want you. Come and revive your people. Turn our hearts from idols, from ourselves, and set our eyes on Jesus. Make us hunger 
for you, thirst for you. Be desperate for your glory, for your fire, for your spirit to work in us and through us and among us. We pray. Let's sing this.
church and that is our prayer can we all stand together as we bring this request to the feet of Jesus this is our response
the treasure you found. Anybody found treasure? Mm. Mm. Everybody doing okay? I know it's a, it's a tough morning, right? Repent, wrath. We've got to be true to God's word, right? Here's what I want to ask you to do. Uh, this is for the believer and the one who is far from the Lord. Here's what I want to ask you to do. If, you've re, if you recommitted your life today, if you changed your mind, if you're a believer and you changed your mind because you know you've been doing, you've been doing something, you've been living a, a distance from God, and today you repented, you recommitted, you changed your mind, here's what we're going to ask you to do. I'm going to put up a number back here. We're going to ask you just to text recommit or repent to 630-260-1600. That's if you're a believer or an unbeliever. And here's the reason why we are asking you to do this if you're a believer. We're not going to call you. We're not going to kind of follow up with you. What's going on in your life? Unless you need to talk to a pastor. We're here. But this is more for you to kind of have that accountability that, you know what, I definitively made a decision today to change my mind. And then if you prayed that prayer with me at the very end and you turn to Jesus for the first time, we're going to ask you to text repent to that number because we want to celebrate with you. We want to help you now grow in your faith, your belief and your confidence in Jesus because that's what you did today. You said, you know what? I'm tired of putting my faith in myself or something else. I'm putting my faith in Jesus. So will you text that number, and then we're going to ask those who are on Facebook, uh, we're going to put that number. We, we, we also want you to text. So let me end with the first verse of the hymn, Trust and Obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who trust and obey. So trust and obey, for there's no other way to be, anybody know it? Say, say it. Happy. To be joyful, to be exuberant. There's no other way. There's no other way to be happy, to be joyful in Jesus only to trust and obey. You're sent out to trust and obey. Church, you're sent to be the salt and light of the world.